Physics World. Hello and welcome to the Physics World Weekly Podcast. I'm Hamish Johnston. Last week's Nobel Prize announcements included a bumper crop of physicists, with five of the 11 new laureates having a background in physics. Later on in this podcast, we're going to be chatting about several physics-related themes that run through this year's six Nobel Prizes. But first, nuclear fusion is the process whereby hydrogen or other light nuclei combine to produce heavier elements, releasing huge amounts of energy. Fusion is what powers the sun, and if we could harness it here on Earth, it would be a significant source of clean, carbon-free energy. While scientists understand the physics of fusion, creating a practical fusion power plant remains a significant engineering challenge. But those in the fusion community believe that this challenge can be met. Indeed, many believe that it must be met for the sake of the planet. To talk about the future of fusion, I'm joined down the line from Washington, D.C. by Andrew Holland, who's CEO of the Fusion Industry Association. Hi, Andrew. Welcome to the podcast. Hello, Hamish. Great to be with you. So, Andrew, can you give us a brief description of the Fusion Industry Association? Who are your members and what are your main goals? Sure. The, the FIA is the independent business association for all of the privately financed fusion energy companies. So we have 38 companies, 38 member companies right now, all of whom have different approaches to getting to commercial fusion energy. To be a member, you have to have raised private capital and have to have uh, a plan to getting commercial fusion energy. So a way to build a fusion power plant and sell that power uh, so we, all of these companies think that they can get there on an accelerated timescale and have investors who believe that this is something that is happening in a relevant time frame for their investments. So sooner than a lot of people think. And I, I know I sort of touched on um, some of the key benefits of fusion energy over existing energy sources, but c can you just give our listeners a roundup of why we really should be pursuing fusion energy. Yeah, of course. Fusion energy is clean, safe, sustainable, always on, always available with a, a, a fuel source that is virtually unlimited. And by virtually unlimited, I mean into this time frame of hundreds of millions or even billions of years of fuel here on Earth. So it, it, is, a, it is the perfect energy source. It creates no carbon emissions, no greenhouse gas emissions. Uh, it has no long-lived nuclear waste. Uh, it, it, there's no threat of a meltdown. There's uh, no, no broad safety impact to the public. Uh, so it is, it's everything we could want energy to be. Uh, the challenge is, is that it's scientifically very hard to do here on Earth. So, so we're still working on it. We're still getting to the point where... Uh, we need to, uh, to to do a lot of engineering and some science still to get there. Uh, but we believe we're on our way and we believe the signposts are there 
uh, that that show we're not in the science fiction far off future for fusion energy, but in the near, the relatively near term, the the decadal time frame of where we can get to commercial fusion energy, putting uh, clean, safe, sustainable fusion energy on the grid in in a decade's time frame. And and first and foremost, the idea with fusion is is to create lots of heat that can then be used to generate electricity. But that's not the only potential application for fusion technologies. Can you can you talk about some other uses, such as medical and uh, propulsion applications? Yeah, in in some some respects, actually, the the nearer term ways of uh, ge- of of getting uh, using fusion to generate medical isotopes. Uh, which can be very helpful for certain forms of cancer treatment, or these isotopes can be used for for medical imaging, you know, seeing internally into the body. These are things that are happening right now. Companies are using fusion processes, not break-even fusion. They're, they're, you know, losing energy on it, but they're creating these important medical isotopes uh, right now. Uh, So these, these are important things that are happening right now. You talk about propulsion. Uh, fusion propulsion for space applications means you could get from low Earth orbit to Mars in a matter of weeks or a month instead of the six, nine, 12 month time frame it takes to go one way to Mars. So it, it really opens up the entire solar system to exploration and, and uh, human habitation, really important sort of things like this. And then you mentioned, you know, the the real killer app is is energy production, the thing that that we need for, uh, you know, for for meeting the climate change challenge, is to have always on, always available zero carbon energy, and and that means not just electricity production. Electricity production is a big one, but also you need things like process heat for industrial applications to make clean fuels. You need you need a, a form of zero carbon heat. Fusion can provide that. Uh, so so there is uh, there's multiple different applications in in um, energy and, and industrial purposes that fusion can meet all of these. And our companies are, are looking at all of these different markets. So, Andrew, fusion was first demonstrated in the lab in the 1930s and creating a fusion pl- power plant. That idea has been around since at least the 1940s. But why has it proven so difficult to develop practical fusion technologies. Yeah, the the challenge, of course, is not just to create fusion, but to create fusion with net energy, to get more energy out of the fusion reaction than you put into it. And it's turned out that, you know, so fusion happens within a plasma. Uh, And in the 1930s, 1940s, we didn't know anything about plasma physics. We didn't know how plasmas worked. And so, so they've basically, scientists have, have basically had to create a whole new field of physics uh, to understand how it works and what will happen. And so, so you create a plasma and then within that plasma, you drive it up to either extreme temperatures or extreme pressures. And, and bring it to fusion conditions. And in those fusion conditions, then you can get that, that break-even fusion experiment. The problem is to getting to those fusion conditions, you have to have 
some sort of extreme power source. So on one end is laser inertial fusion energy. So using a laser or, or other driver to, to put a lot of energy onto a very small target, you create kind of a, a, an extreme pressure situation and fusion happens there. Or at the other end of, of sort of that, that extreme plasma physics is you use really powerful magnets to contain the, uh, the, the plasma in a, in a steady state sort of system. And so that takes a lot of energy. And, and then there's all of these multiple different sort of combinations and options along there. But, but the, the truth is, is that for most, most of that whole continuum, it, you need to have a lot of energy to get to that point where, you know, you can get to that break even. So yes, we were able to do fusion experiments in the forties, uh, and see fusion happen. Uh, but it wasn't until last year, December of 2022, that we were able to actually in a controlled setting, have a fusion experiment that, uh, that got more energy out than put in. And that was at the national ignition facility in, uh, Lawrence Livermore, California. So the first time to do a controlled fusion experiment, you know, we really see this as our Wright Brothers moment, the, the, the time that the airplane took off for the first time. You know, the, the Wright Brothers and other, other folks understood that planes would fly. They just hadn't actually, you know, gotten there. And it took a whole new area of, of science, you know, the, the um, aeronautical uh, engineering to, to be able to do this. Uh, so it was a very uh, challenging and, and important thing. And, and we think we're there. The plane is flown. We're not selling it yet, but we're, we're on our way. And the FIA has released a report called The Global Fusion Industry in 2023. And in it, you identify 43 companies worldwide that are developing fusion technologies. And you also point out that this is up from the 33 that you surveyed um, in 2022. And um, going further back, the report reveals a sharp increase in fusion companies that began about 2017. And I think this, you know, this would probably surprise a lot of our listeners, given the fact, you know, you've just explained how difficult it is. Why are, are private companies coming in and, uh, and, and addressing this challenge. What, why have you seen this rapid growth in the number of fusion companies? Well, you know, I, I think it really is. It's a case of, you know, meeting the market. The time is happening. And, and you know, when it becomes clear that there is a pathway to making money off of something, then investors will come in and start to, to make the investments to get there. And so uh, the, the fact that we've seen almost this sort of Cambrian explosion of private fusion companies doing all sorts of different technologies, I think, I think we should under, uh, really underscore that. The fact that there's, there's 43 companies around the world, really, if you look at the technology subsets and, and pathways that they're doing, there's pretty much... 43 different paths that they're trotting on. It's not like they're all just racing along the exact same technological pathway. They're all doing different ways of getting there. So, so we're at this point where 
we think we understand the physics well enough, that the science is well enough understood that we're going to get there. We know if we can build the thing, then we can get to a, uh, a break-even fusion in a, uh, in a commercially relevant uh, sort of manner. So, so we know that that's happening. Uh, and so now companies are raising money to build that thing. And, and so, so they're all racing against each other and, and racing against other technologies as well to, to meet the climate challenge, the, the, the clean energy transition challenge. So we think that's really a, a key, important uh, time that, that, that we're at right now. And, and they're all, yeah, it, it, companies are coming into this because there is a, um, uh, there's a market need, and uh, and on the supply side, the the science is is ready. We're we're there. So so I, I think there's there's a misunderstanding that something is happening because fusion is uh, it, it's ready. We're there, and and we think we're on our way. And so is is that what investors tell you? Because you also report that nearly six billion dollars in private money has been invested in fusion uh, companies so far. When you, when you speak with investors, well, what do they tell you? Why are they keen on, on, on supporting um, these companies and these technologies? Yeah, investors think that they are on their way. They, investors think that fusion has met this, this timeline where they can make money on it in the return, on, in the timeline of their uh, investment. Uh, so, uh, that means that, that they think they, they're all kind of, they're, they're looking at which team and which way forward is, is the way forward. So, so yeah, the, the scale of the climate challenge, the scale of the energy transition is such that we do need all sorts of energy sources and we need these always on, always available energy sources. So these say, many of these same investors have already invested in solar, wind, you know, clean energy technologies of today. But they're looking at those and saying, I don't know if we can get there, all the way there, um, by 2050, which is what the science says we need to do. So we need al alternative approaches, and, and fusion is the ultimate energy source and the, the ultimate alternative approach. So if, if, uh, if it proves to be viable and an investor hasn't invested in it, then they're missing out on the next great industry of the 21st century. So, so there has been kind of a, a real interest in getting in early into those seed and series A uh, sort of investments uh, to, uh, to make sure that they don't miss that this next great investment. And if you look in terms of big projects, you know that is big projects that are that are funded by by many different uh, countries. Much of the global effort um, at the moment has been focused on the International Thermonuclear Experimental Reactor, or ITER, which is a large scale magnetic confinement reactor that's currently under construction in France, um, and. There is a big contrast here, isn't there? Because for the most part, your members are developing much smaller scale technologies. And as you said, exploring a range of routes to fusion power. Why is it important at this point um, to support a wide range of approaches? 
Yeah, we, we shouldn't down select too early. We shouldn't say that one approach is going to be the only approach that's going to get there. You know, the lesson from other transitions in energy and other technologies is that you need the market to work and you need to sort of have competition to see which one is is the appropriate way forward. What's happened with ITER, uh, you know, ITER is, is a really important science experiment. It's a really important example of how countries can work together. It, it came out of a Reagan-Gorbachev summit in 1985. You know, it's a really good example. It was the Soviet Union working with the United States, you know, came out of, you know, Cold War politics and, and all this, this sort of uh, stuff. It was, it, it's really important history. But also, its time is, it, it, it's a very different um, sort of uh need or necessary approach than the private approaches. Eater is being built so big and and it, it was it was put together as the lowest risk in terms of technology to get there, but not lowest risk in terms of cost. And so so it was being built just to 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 show that you can do it. And using the technology at the time, when it was designed in the mid-1990s, using that technology, it's to make it as big as possible. And it was, it really is, it's too big to fail, right? And, and the private approaches, on the other hand, is that, you know, no, no private approach is too big to fail. Of course, the company doesn't want to fail, but the way the markets works are you try things and you fail. You know, if you talk to a venture capital investor, they don't want any of their investments to fail, but also they kind of expect them to. And and they look for that one out of 10 or even one out of 100 that will pay for the whole investment fund, you know, make all of the money back and really drive it all, all through. So it's just a very different model and way of thinking about it. Um, Eater is being built so that it can't fail you know, all the other approaches, our private sector approaches are being built to commercial spec specifications from the start. And then investors are looking at it as well. If one of these hits or, you know, say two, three, four of them hit, then it is game changer for the entire world. So, uh, you know, since Eater was designed, technology has advanced so much. Just think if you were trying to, if you were building a, a computer uh, from today. You'd build it with today's technology, not 1990s technology. The same thing has happened in, in fusion. The, the state of the art has advanced so much and just government timescales move slower. And, uh, you know, it, it, it's, it just means that, that there isn't really important science that's going to come out of ITER, but at the same time, it's not built for commercial spe specification. And I also wanted to ask you, Andrew, about timescales. In your survey, you asked people in the industry when they thought the first fusion power plant would deliver electricity to the grid. And I think 26 out of 40 people said that this would happen by 2035, which is, which is just 12 years from now. Yeah. Um, yeah. What, what will the fusion industry and the, fu the fusion community have to achieve between now and then for this to happen? Yeah. To build a pilot plant on that decadal time frame is really important. 
is is really challenging too. You have to be able to work and do multiple things in parallel instead of, you know, in sequential order, retiring retiring risk, saying, well, we've we've figured this thing out and now we move to the next thing and then we move to the next thing and then we move to the next thing. You have to look at all of the risk that you have to do over time and then you have to to begin working on all of it at the same time. So companies right now, multiple companies within the FIA are building what they call their proof of concept machine. These are the the machines that will, you know, like like we talked about with NIF, they will prove the airplane flies. They will prove net energy in a commercially relevant fusion plasma. And so we've got multiple companies that are building that right now. And to be able to meet that goal of of electricity on the grid in the 2030s, that means you have to be able to prove your concept pretty soon. You know, you're right. 12 years is not a long time, especially when you're building big things, big new things. So so companies have to be able to build that proof of concept machine in the middle of this decade. It's already 2023, almost 2024. So that means companies need to be building things right now to produce that net energy experiment in 25, 26, 27, so that then they can swiftly move, they can prove out that they can do the science and then then move swiftly into that building a pilot plant, you know, and a pilot plant will be able to do all of the science plus integrate all of the important engineering, things like, um, being able to generate its own fuel through the interactions of uh, neutrons with the first wall, things like um, having a, a neutron resistant uh, materials within there, just being able to actually have a, you know, all of the things that you need to, to have a pilot plant generating electricity, either for you know, for first minutes and hours, and then ultimately weeks, months, years to be able to, to prove that you have a, a commercial power plant. This is going to be a process, you know, just because the first electricity will be produced in the early 2030s, it doesn't mean the first ones will be cheap. We just think that there's a pathway to, towards ultimately they'll be cheap. Well, that's really interesting, Andrew. Thanks so much for coming on to the podcast. And um, listeners, you can read that report on the Fusion Industry Association website. Thanks, Andrew. It's been a great year for getting physics into the public imagination. In July, the film Oppenheimer was a hit. It brought in nearly a billion dollars at the box office and gave the public a real sense of the scientific and moral challenges that faced the physicists who built the first atomic bomb. And then last week, the Nobel Prize for Chemistry was given for work in the very physics-y field of quantum dots. And one of the winners, Alexei Akimov, is a physicist. And the winner of this year's Nobel Prize for Peace, the jailed Iranian activist Narges Mohammadi, has a degree in physics. To chat about these physics connections and more, I'm joined down the line from the University of Durham by Hannah Smallstitch, who's written a series of blogs about past Nobel Prizes for Physics World. Hi, Hannah. Welcome to the podcast. 
Thank you. Thanks so much for having me. So, Hannah, in one of your blogs, you make a connection between the film Oppenheimer and the Nobel Prize. And you ask, why is there no Nobel Prize for nuclear fission, which was discovered in 1938 and played a crucial role in the development of the atomic bomb. Now, there's a chemistry Nobel for fission in 1944, and that went to the radio chemist Otto Hahn. So, Hannah, why do you think there was no physics prize? And if there should have been a prize, who, which physicist should have bagged it? So, nuclear fission was discovered by Otto Hahn, who was a chemist, and Lisa Meitner, who was a physicist. Um, obviously, Otto Hahn is the chemist that won the Nobel Prize for it. Um, so it seems the Nobel Committee decided to give um, a distinctly chemistry prize to Hahn, and then Meitner had missed out on it. And I think I think in their defense, there is some suggestion that um, the 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 chemists in Sweden who decided on the prize didn't really understand physics, and they also didn't really understand the interdisciplinary nature of what Hahn and Meitner were doing. Um, so, so, so they ignored Meitner. I suppose that's a, a generous interpretation of what happened. But it, it also seems that, well, it, it's not, it doesn't seem, um, Meitner did not win a, a physics prize for fission. And I mean, fission is certainly a profound discovery in physics, and, and she did some fantastic work. And, um, you know, she, 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 I think a lot of people think that she should have won the physics prize. So wh why do you think there was no physics prize? Um, did it have to do with fission or did it have to do with Meitner or was it a bit of both? Um, it might have been a bit of both. So at the time, um, I suppose not right when we, they discovered it, but immediately after, if you've seen Oppenheimer, you can see the... Um, the moment that they split the new split the atom um, and then atomic bombs were developed very shortly after that. And so the bombings of Hiroshima and Nagasaki were on the forefront of everyone's minds. And so the physics committee or the Nobel physics committee might have been not very keen to recognize nuclear fission as a scientific discovery when everyone was still wor very worried about nuclear war. Meitner was likely overlooked because of her gender and because of her heritage as a Jewish woman, especially in the um, World War II era when Jewish persecution was a big problem. There, there were a lot of very high profile physicists, uh, I believe, um, Albert Einstein, um, uh, Arthur Compton, who uh, in the subsequent years uh, nominated Meitner over and over again for the Nobel Prize, but um, unfor unfortunately, she never won. And d d do you think, Hannah, that a lot of that had to do with the fact that she was a woman? Do you think it was possibly easier to overlook her? I definitely do think being a woman was part of why she got overlooked. Um, and we even still see this today with um, Jocelyn Bell Burnell, who discovered pulsars as a grad student, but didn't get recognized officially for that um, through the Nobel system and stuff. One of this year's physics laureates is Anne Luillier, who is just the fifth woman to win the physics prize. 
And out of the 11 people who won prizes this year, only four were women. So it looks like there's much more work to do. Yeah, definitely. I mean, just looking at the fifth woman since 1901 to win a physics Nobel Prize is absolutely astonishing, especially when you think about how much science and how much physics is being conducted around the world and how much of it is done by women um, to only recognize five of them in what over a century is it's (laughs) I can't even explain it. (laughs) Um, It's pretty incredible to think about um, who might not be getting recognized for that. Um, And even across the, all of the Nobel prizes, just seeing how out of the nine, three of them are women and thinking about the work that women are doing in all different fields and how they're getting recognized for that is much to think about. And um, uh, another physicist who won a prize uh, this year is uh, the Peace Prize winner, and that's um, Narges Mohammadi. And she's been honored for her fight against the oppression of women in Iran and her fight to promote human rights and freedom for all. And I thought it was very interesting um, that a lifetime after Meitner um, was working on fission under the shadow of Nazism, that this year's Peace Prize, um, I think Mohammadi's life resonates with Meitner's experience, doesn't it? I think it's very interesting that the Peace Prize winner is a physicist um, and maybe studying physics through, um, studying physics originally kind of opens your eyes to that sort of difference um, and that gender difference because I don't know if this is just my university or if other women feel like this, but you can look around a physics lecture theater and you can definitely notice there is a difference. And so maybe she saw, noticed this difference, noticed more of the oppression around her um, and inspired her to do work, which I think is really interesting. The third woman to win a Nobel this year is the economist Claudia Golden, And she studies gender pay gaps in workforces. Do you think that Golden's work explains some of the profound gap in the number of women and men who have won the physics prize? We mentioned that only five women have won the physics Nobel Prize since 1901, but an astonishing 220 men have won. Uh, That's a huge gap. Do you think Golden's research provides any insight into why? Yeah, I definitely think so. Um, Obviously, if you're not getting paid well enough and you're not getting paid the same as your colleagues, then that's quite demoralizing. That's quite, or it's not conducive to doing really great research. Um, And I think seeing her work is good so that we can take steps to make sure that women are not overlooked in the same way that Meitner was. Um, And hopefully seeing, if we see that, we can take steps to address it. And maybe later on down the line, once the Nobel Prizes catch up to the work that's being done today, um, hopefully we can see that ratio, which is currently five to 220. Hopefully we can see that ratio close a bit um, later on down the line Um, once we see more work from female physicists. 
One thing that I, I, I saw in Golden's work that I think really resonates with the academic community and, and physics is that um, even when um, women have very good um, educational background and um, they're, they're doing very well in their careers, the, the, the gender gap appears when um, they start to have children. And I think in, you know, in academic research, that's, that's very important because roughly, um, you know, people start having children at around the same time that you would expect an academic career to start taking off when a, when a physics researcher starts working independently and, and makes their name. So, um, yeah, I, I thought that was a really interesting observation of Golden that I think is really uh, applicable to um, academic physicists and their careers. Yeah, and definitely... We see a lot of work, really good work, trying to get women into STEM early on and get early STEM education for everyone and women especially. Um, but I think it all, like you said, it is good to note and maybe take steps to address um, benefits and um, how we treat um, mid-career researchers and when they start going independent, looking at the institutions that they work in and trying to essentially treat women the same as they treat men, even when they're trying to start families or do that kind of work at the same time. Yeah, that, that's really interesting, Hannah. And I, and I hope that's something that will happen um, in the future, uh, if not now. Uh, thanks for coming on the podcast, Hannah. And you can read Hannah's blogs about the Nobel Prizes on the Physics World website. I'm afraid that's all the time we have for this week's podcast. Thanks to Andrew Holland and Hannah Smallstitch for joining me today. And a special thanks to our producer, Fred Isles. We'll be back again next week when I meet the co-founder of a company that specializes in the development of quantum algorithms. Physics World